If you have a Bible, we're going to do part two of Beware of False Teachers. So if you would turn to 2 Peter 2. Let's pray. Father, I just ask that you'll make the word we hear today, Lord, not just another message, just not another time that we've heard the word and forget it, but that you'll impress upon our hearts, especially in these end times, the warning of false teachers and false prophets that are on the scene. They've always been on the scene, Lord, and you'll just give us ears to hear what you have to say in Jesus' name. All right, so we'll begin reading in 2 Peter 2, verse 1. And Peter writes, But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. And through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you, whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, Condemn them with an overthrow, making them an example unto those that after should live ungodly. But he delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them in seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. And that's how far we'll read today. So the thing is, we have here, Peter is an old man, and he knows that he is going to die shortly. So you just look back in chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Peter says, knowing that shortly, he says, I must put off this my tabernacle, even as the Lord Jesus Christ has showed me. And he says, moreover, I will endeavor that you may be able, after my decease, to have these things always in remembrance. And so he begins in chapter one, he is encouraging these saints to press on. And he says, you all need to grow in the divine nature. And that's quite a calling that we have in that. And he said, God has given us his power and his promises that we may do that. And so we have to exercise the faith in the word, those promises he's given that we heard this morning, that word from Brother Terry. That is how that's going to happen. That's how we're going to grow. That's how we're going to be secure. That's how we're going to be having an abundant entrance into his kingdom. You don't want to be somebody that is just barely hanging on by the skin of your teeth. I'm not always struggling. Am I saved? Am I going to make it? Am I really one of his? Am I one of the elect? You want to live your life like that? That'll squeeze all your joy out of you. And he's saying, you just do these things he's given us to do. Add to your faith, knowledge, temperance, brotherly love, and so on, godliness. He says, ah, oh, you won't squeak in. You'll have an abundant, wide entrance into his kingdom. And he tells them actually four times in these epistles. He's saying, I'm getting ready to die, but I'm telling you things. It's important. I want you to remember them. So look like in chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. He says, wherefore, I will not be negligent. I'm not going to be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things. Though you know them, you already know them, but you still need to be reminded and to be established in the present truth. Verse 13, yeah, I think it is suitable as long as I am still in this body, I'm going to stir you up by putting you in remembrance. And he says it again in verse 15, moreover, I will endeavor that you may be able after my decease, after I'm dead, to have these things always in remembrance. And he says it again in chapter 3, verse 1. He says, this second epistle, this second letter, beloved, I'm writing to you in the both which I'm stirring up your pure minds. How? By way of remembrance. And so he's doing it two ways here. He doesn't want them to forget. He is like a concerned parent. So he is encouraging them so it's like your kids go out, my teenage kids, hey, have a good time. But you also, don't you give them a warning a lot of times? Watch where you're going. Watch who you're hanging around. There are people out there, they are looking to take advantage of your young body. That's the way it goes. And that's what he's doing in chapter 2. You look at the words in chapter 2, it is a stern and graphic warning. It's not the kind of fluff messages to preach to get everybody all excited at a seminar. It's a little bit heavy, but... 
What we need to see is that the danger of these false teachers are real, real, and there are eternal consequences involved. Peter loves these people. He's pastor of these people, and he's getting ready to die, and he said, it's going to break my heart. Just think if you're getting ready to leave your family and you're talking to your kids, you're going to say the most important things you can to them. And you're going to say, look, just please just press on in godliness. Stay away from this group over here. They're going to take you off to Rome because I don't want to see you perish. Isn't that what you're going to do? And Paul felt the exact same way. You want to listen to a dying godly man's last words. You do. Paul in Acts 20, when he's addressing the elders in Ephesus, he tells them, he says, now behold, I know that you all among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God. She says, I know this is the last time I'm seeing your face. And at the end of all his speech, they're all crying because they know they're never going to see this man again. And there was a true love between them. But here's what he tells them. We talked about this last week. He warns them too. He says, take heed. You're never going to see me again. He says, take heed therefore unto yourselves, to yourselves, but not only yourselves, this flock that God has put you over over which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he's purchased with his own blood. Paul says, for I know something, I know this, that after my departing shall grievous, fierce, savage wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. And he says, therefore, watch And remember the same thing Peter said, that by the space, he said, of three years, I cease not to warn every one of you night and day with tears. That's what he's telling them. So whether or not we take the danger seriously, Peter and Paul did, and so did the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the Bible teaches us from cover to cover that life in this world It is not a skating party for Christians, is it? It is a life of constant conflict, and we are in real spiritual warfare, whether we realize it or not, because the devil, as that Keith Green song, he wants us to be asleep in the light. (laughs) And the Bible's always telling us to wake up. So there's the powers of light and darkness. They're struggling for our souls, for the souls of men. Now, the elect are going to prevail But it's not going to just be because they're sitting back and this is just a life of ease. We're just going to skate on through this world. It doesn't happen that way. Because we have Peter and Paul. They're screaming. They're saying, look, evil powers are going to try to draw you away through these teachings. That's how they work, through these teachings of men. And so they tell us to guard yourselves, watch, pray, take heed, stand, fight, earnestly contend for the faith. Isn't that the words we hear? Everybody wants to hear joyful messages. Well, there should be joyful messages preached. But you're not going to read anywhere in the Bible and get very far to where there's talk about you've got to be on your guard against sin, there's error, there's judgment. Say, so if you just want to select places from the Bible, we could be happy every week. There's a big church down in Texas. They are. They're happy every week. I don't like to preach about sin. I don't want to make people feel bad. Well, let's stick with what the Bible says. A lot of people, they're bored with doctrine. We don't want to talk about doctrine. Let's just talk about the love of Jesus. Okay, well, that is a doctrine in and of itself. But here's what I want to say. People may not want to hear doctrine. They don't like teaching. They want to hear something that uplifts their souls that they can amen and da-da-da-da-da. And I'm fine with all that. That has its place. I'm going to tell you who's not bored with doctrine. The devil. He is not bored with doctrine. And we're warned about that in 1 Timothy 4.1. Listen to this. We've heard this before, but listen. The Spirit, he says, speaks expressly. Clearly is what that means. The Spirit speaks expressly that in the latter times, some shall depart from the faith. So how do they depart from the faith? What causes them to do that? Giving heed to what? Seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. So you want to know how people get away from the faith? Because they're not hearing the truth. They're hearing fluff. They're not hearing about sin, holiness, the fear of God, judgment, hell. They're not hearing those things. They've got itching ears. And that's why Paul tells Timothy, he says, you need to preach the word. Whether they want to hear it or not, they may not even want to hear it. They're going to come a time, he says, they're not going to want to endure sound doctrine. But I'm telling you, the devil's concerned about doctrine. 
His doctrine is going to make sure it gets out there. And that's why the warning is you don't want to be somebody that listens to it. The Spirit speaks expressly. Some shall depart from the faith because they listen to the wrong thing. And the question then is, will you or I be one of them? So for Peter, we talked about last week, the question isn't whether or not we're going to have to deal with false teachers. That's not the question, whether or not we're going to have to, because he says it's certain. And so the warning for us is be prepared, right? Be like the Bereans, be prepared. That's what we have here in verse 1. False teachers are certain, he says, but there were false prophets. In Old Testament times, also among the people, he says, even as there what? There shall be false teachers among yourselves. There shall be, not might be, could be, but shall be. It's a certainty. So that means they're here. They always have been here. And he says they'll do what? He says they'll privily bring in damnable heresies. Privily, that means they're, they're going to secretly introduce them. It's like a smuggler. He's bringing something in from the outside to the inside. It is not supposed to be there. He snuck it in. And that's what they're saying. They'll privily bring in destructive opinions, damnable heresies. Paul said they're grievous wolves that speak perverse things. So what we said last time was they take the truth and they distort it. So it's guised under the truth, but it's truth that's twisted. And in doing that, he says they're going to produce a teaching, a doctrine that's not according to truth, but it's going to cause people to deny the Lord that bought them. And that is serious. So we saw in Jude 4, Jude verse 4, that parallels 2 Peter 2. The teaching that denies the Lord is what? It's turning his grace, the grace that is intended to deliver men from sin, it's turning that grace instead of that into a license to sin, just the opposite of its purpose. And so when Peter says here in chapter 2, verse 1, even denying the Lord, typically the word for Lord in Greek is kurios, but here it's despotes. Despot is where we get our word. He's saying they're denying the Lord. And that word despot, it's a ruler with absolute authority over you. He's saying we're his slaves and they're supposed to be his slaves, but they're denying his lordship over them. That's what they're doing because he has a right to be our sovereign ruler, doesn't he? Because the Bible teaches Jesus, we have been bought. You know, if you're a slave on a market, once that slave owner buys you with his money, you're his property. You don't have a choice anymore on where you go, what you do, where you live. And that's what it says in the Bible, that we have been bought with a price by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that, he is our rightful master. But these men, and this is the teaching that they promote, they don't want anybody telling them what to do. So look over in verse 10, chapter 2, look in verse 10. Look what it says about them. He says, the Lord knows how to reserve the unjust of the day of judgment. In verse 10, it says, but chiefly, or first of all, them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness. And what else does it say about them? It says they despise government. And the word there means authority. They despise all authority, not just the government, not just the mayor and the president. They despise all authority, God's authority, church authority. And that's their nature. They despise it. Look what it says. Presumptuous are they. Self-willed. They're going to do what they want to do. It says they are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. But you compare these false teachers with Peter, James, Jude, Paul. And you know how they write in their letters? They're proud to be what? Bond slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're proud of that. That's the way they live proud of that. Whereas these people, they says they despise authority. They deny the Lord. They deny his right to be Lord over their lives. And we can do whatever we want. Self-willed, it says. So what did Jesus come to do? We talked about that last week. He came to save his people, the angel told Joseph, from their sin. And they say, no, he didn't. He didn't come to save us from our sin. He came to save us in our sins. We can sin, they will teach, and that's the teaching in all its subtle forms. We can sin and still be saved, still make it to heaven. So they deny the very reason that the Lord Jesus Christ came to earth. 
The very reason his purpose was what? To create a holy people. That's what he came for, and he does that through his kingly reign of grace in our lives. That's how it happens. So it says there at the end of verse 2, back in 2 Peter 2, it says there, even denying the Lord that bought them, and it says they will bring on themselves, it says, swift destruction. So that word for destruction, it's the exact same Greek word for damnable and damnable heresies. And so he's saying their destructive opinions and how they're going to affect others and bring them in destruction. They said it's going to turn on these men and they will be destroyed. And that's what it's saying there at the end of verse two. They will bring upon themselves swift destruction, swift, quickly. It's like the Lord's return. And that's solemn words. And so here are the results of those destructive results. And you look in verse chapter two, first Peter two, two, and it says, and many because of what they've done, it says many shall follow their pernicious ways by reason of whom the way of truth, it says, shall be evil spoken of. And that's the bad thing about all this. And this is where the warning is. He doesn't just say it's going to be a few people, does he? When he says, how many does he say? He says many will follow their sensual. That's what that per word pernicious, sensual, unrestrained ways, their depraved conduct, their shameful immorality, their debauched lives. That's what that teaching that they have is going to promote in their people. And it goes on to say, when the world sees that in Christians, those that bear the name of Christians, when they're living sensual, unrestrained lives, when they see no difference between those who profess to be Christians and those who aren't, they laugh at the same crude jokes. And when they watch the same movies, drink the same beer, curse when they're lazy, when they rip people off, it says when people say that, what does it say at the end of verse 2? It says there they will cause them to speak evil of the way of truth. And that's serious because Christianity is supposed to be pointing people to the way of truth, the way to life. Jesus said what? He says, I am the way. That word way just means the road. He says, you follow me and don't deny me, but let me deliver you from sin. He says, I am the way to life. And Christianity is many times referred to as the way, quote unquote, the way in the book of Acts. Acts 9-2, it says this, And Paul desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, is what it was called, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And Acts 19-9, it says, But when many were hardened and believed not, but spoke evil of the way, before the multitude, it says Paul departed. And in Acts 22, 4, he says, I persecuted, Paul says, this way unto the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. And if you would turn over, I'd like you to see these last few in Acts 24, where he's speaking to Felix. Acts chapter 24. So Acts 24, 14, he says, but this I confess unto thee, that after the way which they call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. And then look down in verse 22. And when Felix heard these things, having more perfect knowledge of that way. So what is this message? What is this message of the way? Well, Paul gives it to him. Look, it's down in verses 24 and 25. And after certain days, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, which was a Jewess, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. And as he reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come, Felix trembled and answered, Go thy way for this time when I have a convenient season. He says, I will call for thee. And that is what the way is, isn't it? It's a way of righteousness. It's speaking of you have the judgment of God before you and all you do throughout your day. That you realize what I do, the decisions I make. One day, we are all going to have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. That's what it's saying there. And so if you go back to 2 Peter 2, Peter speaks of the way three times here. And so in verse 2, it says, Many shall follow their pernicious ways by reason of whom he says they're the way of truth. Verse 2, shall be evil spoken of. Down in verse 15 of chapter 2 in 2 Peter, he talks about these false teachers, he says, which they have forsaken 
what? The right way. And they're gone astray following the way of Balaam, the son of Bosor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. And down in verse 21, it says, for it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. So it's the way of truth. It's the way of holiness. It's the way of righteousness. That is the way that we need to be on. Amen? That's what he says. So Jesus spoke of two ways, didn't he? In Matthew 7 on the Sermon on the Mount, he said there is a broad way out there. And then he said there is a narrow way. And you think about that. What is the broad way? What's that giving you? Unrestricted freedom. Isn't that the way it is with the world? That's the way it was for me in the world. I pretty much did whatever I felt like in my flesh within limits. And the only reason I didn't do a lot of things is because I didn't want to get punched in the face or whatever. And that's what they're saying there. Liberty. I can be myself. And that is what these false teachers preach. Look in verse 19. 2 Peter 2, 19. And while they what? They promise them liberty. It says they themselves are the servants of what? Corruption for whom a man is overcome of the same as he brought into bondage. Here's how they cloak the truth. They know that the gospel promises liberty, doesn't it? Isn't that we've heard that? But they make the liberty. It's not the liberty that's promised. They pervert it. Because it says they're slaves of corruption and they're making these other people that hear them, their followers, slaves of corruption. That means inward depravity. They're in chains of sin. Verse 14, here's how these people are, the false teachers. Verse 14, they have eyes full of adultery and it says they cannot cease from sin. They can't stop it. They're preaching a, a gospel of liberty, but there is no liberty within themselves. They're slaves of sin within them. And their followers will be the same way. They can't cease from sin. They beguile unstable souls. A heart they have exercised with covetous practices. And it says there that they are cursed children. So, but what is the liberty? What is the true liberty that the New Testament speaks of? Paul writes about it in Galatians 5. He says, for brethren, you have been called in to liberty. Freedom. He says, but that liberty you have is not to be used as an occasion for your flesh. He says, what is that liberty you have for? So you can serve one another. You have freedom now not to live a selfish life. We never had that freedom before. You don't have that freedom as a sinner. The world's in bondage to sin, just like these men here that we talked about. Do you see that? And that's the liberty it's not liberty to do whatever you want to, to wear whatever you want to, go wherever you want to, because I'm under grace. We talked about that last time. The liberty we have now is that we don't have to sin, and we couldn't help ourselves before. That's all we could do. Yeah, amen. So if you turn over to John 8 and put something there, I want you to see this. Turn over to John 8, beginning in verse 31. And he, Jesus, spake these words, and many, it says, believed on him. And then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, he says what? He says, if you continue in my word, then you are my pupils or disciples indeed. Verse 32, and you shall know the truth, and what will the truth do? It will make you free. And my sister had a poster. I remember I first got saved and I'm, she's cutting my hair and I'm sitting there looking at it. And here's this poster. You shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Then I kept reading and the poster went on. This isn't in John, but it says, but first it'll make you miserable. <laughs> oh, that was good. I never forgot that. That was over 30 years ago. So we look here and he's saying the truth will make you free. Free from what? And free to do what? They look down in verse 34 because they're like, hey, we've never been in bondage, verse 33. But Jesus says in verse 34, truly I say unto you, whosoever commits sin is what? The slave of sin. And the servant abideth not in the house. The slave doesn't, doesn't abide in the house forever. But the son will. He says, verse 36, if the son therefore shall make you free, you shall be free Indeed. And so what's he saying? You don't no longer have to be a slave to sin. You don't have to be a slave to pornography. You don't have to be a slave to anger. You don't have to be a slave to worry. You don't have to be a slave to gossip. Make your list. 
Make whatever it is the devil's telling you you have been and always will be a slave to. And he's saying, no, you can know the truth. And that's the liberty the gospel is presenting. And I like this illustration, used it for years. You've got a train on a track, running on a track. And that train is looking around and it's seeing all the deer and the antelope play and the rabbits and the turkeys flying or whatever you see in my backyard. And he's thinking, man, I'm restricted on this. I can't go off in the woods like them. And he's thinking, I want freedom. I want to be like them. And so he jumps off the track. And what happens to him? He is stuck going nowhere. And he'll sit there and rust and die. And so where is the true freedom for that train? It's the way it was intended to be built. And that's when it'll be the most happy, the most free. Amen? So God's given us the gift of sex. One man, one woman for life. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with those desires. And it's like he does with everything that's a sin. He twists it. Why do you have to be with one man? Divorce that one, get another one. And pile them up. You can legally do all that. The church will put its blessing on it anymore. Or just live with them today. Because that's the way God made you to have those desires. Why is he going to restrict you? And we get in the word. He says, you'll know what my word says. And it's like I just heard a man say in his book I'm reading on holiness. He said, there is no sin I've ever committed that made me happy. And that is true. He said, there's sins I've done that have given me pleasure. And that's true. The Bible doesn't deny that. He said, there is not a sin I've ever committed that made me happy. And he says, that's the insanity of sin. We know that. We know that with our heads, and yet we still fall in the trap. So young person, you think, man, I don't want to be restricted. My parents tell me I got to marry somebody that's a believer. I got to marry somebody, da-da-da-da-da. And the Bible says, I'm free. I'm under grace. I can wear the tightest skirt I want to. I'm free. I'm under grace. No, you're not. The Bible teaches modesty. The Bible says not to be unequally yoked. And I'm saying that's where you're going to be truly happy. And that's where God's going to bless you. And that's where your freedom lies. And that's what true liberty is. Amen? Amen. I was a slave and in so many ways to sin. And that's to me what the gospel is. No, you don't have to be a homosexual the rest of your life. Stuck with these desires that God never gave a man. No, you don't. The gospel is you can know the truth and the power of God will free you from that. And that's what faith does. Amen. So we talked about in Second Peter in the first chapter. Back to Second Peter. He's saying there, listen to me, y'all. Many are going to follow these people because it ministers. They're teaching ministers to your flesh. It doesn't minister to your conscience, though. Because you don't know how many people we got to talk to at prison, profess to be Christians, and they're trying, and yet they're living like sinners, and they're trying to somehow have peace with themselves. You'll never have it. And so he's saying many will follow their sensual, pernicious ways. He says, by reason of whom the way of truth is evil spoken of. Because when the world looks around, we're saying there's two ways. And I'm saying that narrow way is restrictive, isn't it? It is. It's as restrictive as God's word makes it and your conscience makes it, which should be guided by God's word. And that can be really restrictive. But when the world looks around and they're on that broad path and they look over and here you are or they look up ahead. Hey, those guys up there, they claim to be Christians and they're right here on this broad path with us doing the same things we're doing. And I thought they said, you know, what would Jesus do? They're always quoting that and they wear their bracelets and then look what they're doing. The same thing we're doing. And that's what Peter's saying. When that happens, when people saying that they're Christians and Christians ministers teach doctrine that enables people to live in sin and think they're okay, and people follow that and do that, he's saying the world, they're not stupid. They look at that and they say, look, we know Jesus is supposed to be holy and truthful and honest, and all of those things, and yet these people are, they're worse than we are. He's saying the way, it's blasphemed. That's what that word means. The way of truth is evil spoken of. And so he goes on here in verse 3, and he says, what is the motive of these guys? What is their motive? Through covetousness, it says, shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you whose judgment now of a long time lingers not, and whose damnation, it says, slumbers not. So is the motivation of a false teacher, is it to promote the welfare of God's people? Is that what they're all about? 
They are out to promote their own welfare, aren't they? Through covetousness. They desire, they want more, they want money. They want your money and my money. That's what they want. Covetous, always wanting more. They're going to exploit you by deceptive words. That's what feigned words are. Feigned is actually a Greek word, plastos. What does that sound like in our English? Plastic. And something that's plastic is fake. And that's what they're saying. They're going to exploit you by their fake, false, plastic, deceptive words. And they're going to make merchandise of you. And they are experts at it. Experts at using religion and the gospel to get you separated from your money. Because look over in verse 14. We read this, but look at the end of verse 14. It says they have eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls. And look what it says at the end. They have an heart, a heart they have exercised with covetous practices. A heart they have, that exercise means to be trained. They're trained in greed. And that word exercised is gumnazo. That's where we get our word gymnasium. Gumnazo. It looks more like it in the Greek than when you say it. Gymnastic training. These guys are trained to be Olympians in ripping you off. That's what it's saying. Because that gymnazo, that word gymnazo, it means to be a highly disciplined, intense training. And they're saying they do Olympic training on how to get your money. And what's interesting is it is the opposite of what God tells us to be as Christians. He uses that same word, gumnazo, and he says, exercise, gumnazo thyself, 1 Timothy 4, 7, unto godliness, not on how to rip people off. Hebrews 5, 14, he tells us, the writer of Hebrews, we should be people that have their senses exercised, gumnazo, to discern both good and evil. And these guys, they're training their hearts not in godliness, not how to discern good and evil, but how to get your money. And they're good at it. So <laughs> you get online, and I could say a lot of things I'm not going to say because I'd be stepping all over some people's favorite ministries. But it would do you good to check out your popular ministries that are so popular and you have your books stacked up on and see how these people, what they're really all about and get on their website. And some of you might be, uh, hopefully you would think, mm, I don't know about this. This isn't right. So this is all from people's websites, ministries. The Balm of Gilead healing cream from the Gilead Valley. One ounce of that, 10 bucks. And that's in James 5, I think, isn't it? Put on the balm of Gilead healing cream for your healing. Or the Mother of Pearl Holy Land Bible. The cover's made in Bethlehem. Each page has gold gild on it. $75. Can't beat that, right? Or I like this one. <laughs> Business Secrets from the Bible. Business Secrets from the Bible. That only cost you $40. And it's got a really nice cover on it. And you open it up and there's just one page. And in the middle of the page it says, Fleece the Flock. <laughs> get that for 40 bucks. Business secrets from the Bible. And I'll tell you, anyone to me that is claiming to unlock secrets, mysteries, hidden truth, but if my antennas are going up right away about that, right away. So listen, there is nothing new under the sun, literally. I'm saying whether we're talking error, heresy, whatever it is, there is, it's all been already done and tried, okay? They just repackage it differently. So there was a group in the early church, they're called the Gnostics. And the Gnostics, what they said was, you have to come into our initiation, you have to come to us because we have all the hidden deep secrets that we can share with you that you can't get any other way. And that's how they got their cult, that's how they got their following. And so compare that to what Jesus says in John 18, 20. Here's what Jesus said. He said, I spake openly to the world. I ever taught in the synagogue and in the temple whither the Jews always resort. And in secret have I said nothing. And he especially wasn't charging people to come and hear him speak. But also, you can get your business and prosperity two-book combo for 60 bucks. That's a deal there, right? You know, sometimes the news media, they can be whatever against Christians, but sometimes what they say is true. 
So in 2001, there was a big TV ministry began asking donations. We've got this orphanage that we're building in Mexico. And they said, we need your money. We're just trying to get it done. It's going to be finished soon. Okay. A year and a half later, no construction had ever begun, period. The building sat empty. There was a sign on the outside of the building in English. Now, this is a Mexican orphanage. <laughs> and the sign is in English, temporary orphanage. When NBC got hold of it, this went on it's as of 2002. Now, they're still taking money. They're still begging for money. Nothing had ever been done, period. And that's the kind of stuff that goes on in its many multifaceted forms. And I'm going to tell you who these people tend to get are single older women watching programs. And they play on your emotions. All I'm going to tell you, that's how this deception's coming in now. In the church, in all its respect, it's, it's playing on your emotions. Because America no longer knows how to think logically, and especially men. Because we watch all these sitcoms and all these shows, all these reality shows, and every single one of them plays on your emotions. And that's the way we discern truth now in this country, and that is dangerous. So here's another one. Become a covenant partner. This is a big TV ministry. I believe it will shape eternity. Because when you join me as a breakthrough covenant partner, you contend for the faith. You storm the gates of hell. You lead the charge to take back the territory from the devil. Become part of our ministry family at a level of spiritual power unlike anything you've known before. Sounds great, doesn't it? Except if you become a platinum covenant partner by enrolling in our auto giving program, you have your gift deducted through recurring credit card or bank drafts. Here's the bonus you get besides all that power he promised you at the beginning, right? He says, I will automatically send you my covenant partner teaching on audio CD along with my teaching letter each month. Let me hear from you quickly. So what I'm saying is, it's like I said, in all its many forms. <laughs> They're exercised. They know how to do all this. They know how to play on your emotions. They know how to say the right thing. They know how to present everything in a way to get you separated from your money. And so, hey, I'm glad I heard all this early on. I'm glad somebody stood in a pulpit and said, if somebody's after your pocketbook, you need to be listening real carefully what they're all about. So I'm not saying everybody that has a radio ministry that at the end says, some of those radio ministries, they do depend on people. If you get blessed by their teaching, I don't have a problem. You send them some money to keep them on the air. I don't think all of those people are necessarily growing fat and rich off of money people are sending in. Okay? But compare that to George Mueller who from the beginning, Mueller refused to ask for funds or even speak of his ministry's financial needs. He believed in trusting the Lord to provide. He didn't preach as a hireling of man, but as the servant of God and would willingly commit to him the provision for his temporal needs. He had a box put in the chapel, in his chapel where he was the pastor, over which was written, here's what they wrote over the box, that whosoever had a desire to do something for his support might put in such an offering therein as ability and disposition might direct. That's the principle why we got a box in the back. You don't hear us begging for money. Nobody hears after your money. And we've tended the way our church is operated. We'll talk about before my day for 30 years. Generally, it's cash. I have nothing to do with what's in that box, counting it or anything else, do I? I have nothing to do with that because I don't really care, honestly. So, and I think people here have been very generous, and you all are still very generous. But I have no idea. So I don't have somebody up here controlling me, and that's the one thing I liked about Brother Hamilton. I really felt like he wasn't being controlled by money and people, and that was his testimony. And I worked for a fat cat one day out in Simpsonville, and he's sitting there literally flipping his coins up in the air and catching them, and he's like, I'm telling him, I said, you know, my pastor, one thing about him is he's not after my money. I know he's not, and he's a man of integrity. And he's flipping his coin up, and he goes, everybody's got their price. He goes, you just get it up high. And I said, I'm going to tell you what, if I thought he had a price, I'd be gone. Because I said, he doesn't have a price. And he couldn't understand that. Because he's all about having a price. So compare that. George Mueller, compare the Apostle Paul in Acts 20. He says, I have coveted no man's silver or gold or apparel. He said, I have showed you all things, how that so laboring, you ought to support the weak and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, 
it is more blessed to give than to receive. Amen. That's what ministry should be all about. Or the words of Samuel in 1 Samuel 12. He's getting ready to leave and he told Israel this. They're like, we don't want you to be our leader anymore. And he goes, behold, here I am. Witness against me before the Lord and before his anointed. He said, whose ox have I taken? Or whose ass have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or of whose hand have I received any bribe to blind my eyes therewith? He says, you tell me. Anybody out there has got a complaint like that? He goes, I'll restore it to you. And they said, you haven't defrauded us nor oppressed us. Neither have you taken aught of any man's hand. And he said unto them, the Lord is witness against you and his anointed this day that you have not found aught in my hand. And they answered, he is witness. There is a man you can trust his word. Integrity. And Peter said this in his first epistle, 1 Peter 5, 2. He says, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be. And he says, not greedy for money, but eager to serve. That should be a minister's heart. Anybody, whether you listen to him on the radio, you come here, whoever it is, that's the way it should be. Hey, I'm letting you know I am in no way after your money. False teachers, though, they look at Christianity as a way of getting a comfortable living. And you know what happens when that's the case? And you start getting a ministry and an empire and a church and all these things running? You know what you're not going to say? Anything that's going to make anybody uncomfortable. You can't afford them to be uncomfortable and leave. Honestly, and that's what happens. That is what happens. And I'm going to tell you what happens too. When you get that kind of teaching, inevitably false teaching leads to false living. They go hand in hand. So it may appear some ministries are prospering and they do for a while. Jim and Tammy Faye Baker, I believe they started off on the right path, but the bigger they got, the more they got off. And man, were they off on the end. And it says there's swift destruction. Well, there's one that imploded right before your eyes. And he was involved in homosexuality. Terrible. It's everything you read about right here. Now I'm saying, I've heard that he's repented. Praise God, if he did, I'm glad. I really am. I rejoice. And he may have. But there's a ministry there. I sat with my mother-in-law one time down in Florida on vacation and watched this documentary on their ministry. And I'm watching how I think they were on the right path. They weren't guided by all that. But... The devil moved in, and they became corrupted. And you can just see the way it ended up was not good. And that's what it's saying there in verse 3, back in 2 Peter 3, 3. He says, And through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you, whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation doesn't slumber. He's saying, hey, the judge isn't asleep. It may appear he is, but God is not asleep. That's what it's telling you. So that's the principle in Psalm 73. The psalmist looks around and he says, I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Man, here I am serving God and these people that aren't and they act like they are, they seem to be doing really well. But it goes on in verses 17 to 19. He says, until I went into the sanctuary of God, he said, and then I understood their end. Surely you do set them in slippery places. You cast them down into destruction. That's what we're reading here. How are they brought into desolation? As in a moment, they are utterly consumed with terrors. That's what he's saying. You read Psalm 73. That's what it says. That's where they're headed. And we don't want to be heading there with them. Amen. So Peter goes on and he gives three proofs of this judgment that's going to come on these false teachers. He talks about the angels. He talks about the old world with Noah. And he talks about Sodom and Gomorrah. And he talks about the angels there in 2 Peter verse 4. He says, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. And these angels, what would they done? It, most All of this is sexual immorality that's involved here for the most part. And that's what we have. He's referring back to Genesis 6 too. When the sons of God, the angels, saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they showed. And the result produced giants. And God says, that's not going to go. He said he didn't spare them at all, but he's put them down in Tartartus is the name. It's below Hades. 
They are reserved in chains of darkness. Those angels are. They're not out amongst the earth like the rest of them, those particular angels. And he's saying, if God didn't spare them, angels, these glorious, powerful, beautiful beings, he didn't spare them at all. They don't think that these men that are corrupting his word and his people and living these licentious lies and leading people that way, don't think he's going to leave them alone. If he didn't leave those angels alone, that is his point. And then he moves on to talk about the old world in verse 5. And he spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. It was a bad time there, wasn't it? It says, God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The earth was corrupt and the earth was filled with violence. And you think about that. God brought that flood, that flood of destruction on. You know how many people they approximate were on the earth? Three billion people were living at that time. Everybody but seven people and Noah. Think about that. Three billion and out of three billion, eight were saved. I mean, that ought to put the fear of God in us. And listen, worldwide judgment is coming again because the world's headed that same way. Now, it's not going to be by water. God promised that'll never happen again, but it isn't going to be pleasant. Read the book of Revelation. But I like what he's done. He's front loaded that with Noah because he's saying there's hope for the righteous. He didn't leave that out, did he? He says, but he saved Noah, destroyed the ungodly and the rest. But he did save Noah, a preacher of righteousness. So God is going to spare those that obey him. That's the promise there, right? And he moves on. A third example he gives is Sodom and Gomorrah. And in verse 6, he talks about them. He says, he brought them into ashes. Nothing left. Total destruction. There was no city there left to rebuild. They were brought all the way down. And it says he's made them an example. You read over in Jude 7, we won't turn there. He's saying homosexuals and fornicators. He's showing them as an example of this is what's going to happen. They are going to be judged. And so here's what we need to ask ourselves. These people are going to be judged if they don't repent. That's what it's saying. And how, when we see how the media it just makes me want to throw up. But how they portray homosexuals in these shows that are on now and just how the news reports what's going on with them, how does that affect you? How does that affect you when you see that? Because look how it affected Lot. Look what it says in verses 7 to 8. It says, God delivered just Lot. But what does it say about him? It says he was vexed with what? The filthy, the sensual lifestyle of the wicked. Verse 8, for that righteous man dwelling among them in seeing and hearing what happened. It says he vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. And that vexed in verse 7 means he was greatly distressed. He's in anguish. It's bothering him. And we should hate what God hates. Psalm 97.10 says, ye that love the Lord hate evil. So am I saying, and I've said this before, am I saying we go and rail on homosexuals and tell them you don't have a chance, God hates you? I've never said that. I've got homosexuals that come into our meeting at prison. I don't treat them that way. We get along. But I say what I need to say when I'm preaching and when I'm talking to them. I'll talk straight to them. But they keep coming back. I'm like, that's fine. But they know I don't dislike them as far as I'm wishing ill on them. I want to see them repent. So that should be our heart. But... We had better hate what they are all about, what their agenda. We had better not be sympathetic to their cause. If you're a Christian, that is not right. If you do that, you need to question whether you really love the Lord. So you hear what I'm saying? I'm not talking about we hate people. We treat them bad. We wouldn't help them out if they're in trouble because we know they're getting... We're not talking about that. We should show them love like that, right? We should. Everybody out there, that is a whole different thing than saying, I'm sympathetic to your cause. Or you're okay. They're not okay. No more than two people living together are okay. Or on and on and on. Turn over to Psalm 101. Look what it says. He says, I will sing of mercy and judgment unto thee, O Lord, will I sing. 
He says, I will behave myself wisely in a perfect way. Oh, when wilt thou come unto me? He says, I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. Verse 3, I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. And how do we rate on that? He says, I hate the work of them that turn aside. It shall not cleave to me. A froward heart shall depart from me. I will not know a wicked person. And whoso privily slanders his neighbor, him will I cut off. Him that has an high look and a proud heart will I not suffer. Mine eyes shall be upon the faithful of the land that they may dwell with me. He that walks in a perfect way, he shall serve me. He that works deceit shall not dwell within my house. He that tells lies shall not tarry in my sight. And this has all been God speaking after verse 2. In verse 8, he says, I will early destroy all the wicked of the land that I may cut off all the wicked doers from the city of the Lord. Wow. I mean, that just basically speaks for itself, doesn't it? So back in 2 Peter, in verse 8, that word, that second vexed is not the same as the vexed in verse 7. It's a stronger word, and it means tormented. And so Lot, it's saying he's living in the midst of a city that is totally given over to debauchery. Homosexuals, fornicators, and you read about in Ezekiel, they were greedy people. They didn't care about the poor living in pleasure. And it says he tormented his soul. And that's the way it should be for us living in this country. I'm saying I think we've gotten cauterized in our heart to this sin that's around us because it just keeps coming at it and it's part of our culture. And the culture's putting pressure on us to accept it. And so in the midst of this false teaching that's coming and it's here and it's happening and it's effect on the church, we have to be like Noah. And we have to be like Lot. And what I'm saying by that is both of those men were far outnumbered, weren't they? Yet they conducted themselves in a godly way. And it says when he had those angels in his house and they knew those angels were there, it says the men of Sodom, they gather around his door. Bunches of them had to be. And it says they were the young and the old. And they tell them, hey, bring them out so we can know them. And Lot rebuked them for that. It says he was a righteous man. He says, I pray you, brethren, do not so wickedly. And did these guys get convicted and repent because righteous Lot rebuked them? Here's what it says. And they said, stand back, they tell Lot. And they said again, this one fellow, this one fellow against all of us came in here to sojourn. To live as an alien. He said, I'm just coming in here for a little bit, boys, to make some money for my wife. And they said, and already he is acting like a judge. You ever heard that? Say something about somebody's sinful lifestyle, or who are you to judge? That's what they said to Lot. Was that judging? He says, brothers, you shouldn't do this wickedness. It's not right before God. They said, he's in here. He's acting like a judge. And this is what they said to him. Now, we'll treat you worse than them. And so they pressed hard against Lot and came near to break the door. It's this one fellow. You ever felt like this one fellow? It's Lot against the city. So listen, I would say it was a whole lot easier to be a Christian in America 30 years ago in the 80s than it is now by far. Because when everybody else seems to pretty much go along with the main things you believe, you can get along, right? But when you've got to take a stand like these men did, When you're outnumbered, that can be a severe test and trial. And I'm telling you, it's just around a situation, I don't want to get into the details. The persons involved in a situation that our country would have accepted as not right not that long ago, and yet they're celebrating it like it's a great thing, and the person's like, am I losing my mind? This just isn't right. I feel like I'm out of place here. And that's the way it's going to be more and more for us. If we stick with this word is what I'm trying to say, because I'm telling you, the thinking in our country right now, this Christian country is upside down. And you know why it's upside down? Because people that are heterosexual don't want to get married. I just read an article, a lady saying we need to do away with marriage and all the things involved with it. So the straight people are saying we don't want to get married. The homosexuals are pressing for laws to get married. Now, if that's not upside down, I don't know what is. That's as upside down as it gets. 
It's not always that people want to go along with it, but they end up, they do. Because I'm having trouble believing these athletes and guys on ESPN are really all this pro-homosexual. They're going to get fired if they don't. And so they develop a different mentality about it all. They change their doctrine, so to speak. And Martin Lloyd-Jones says there are large numbers of people who really do not want to go with the crowd. But the mere fact that there is a crowd carries them away and they are afraid to stand alone. And I'm saying it's only the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that will give us the ability to stand alone against what's coming. Strong spirits are going to be coming against us, telling you, who do you think you are? How can you be sure you're right? Are you sure you got that Bible right? Are you sure this holiness message is exactly like what you said? Everybody sins, don't they? You're going to tell me you're perfect. You're going to hear all that stuff. And who wants to be the butt of sarcasm, ridicule, and contempt? Nobody does. Nobody likes to stand in that way. Stand alone. Who wants to stand alone? But I'm going to tell you, that is the power of our witness to our families, our neighbors, and people we come across is we're willing to stand alone and be different. There's this great theologian in the early church. His name was Tertullian. And he was converted because of the stand that Christians would take against the world. And he said this. This is what convinced him of Christianity. He says, there must be something in this. There must be something in this belief if it can make a man do that. Because he says, they're prepared to give up everything even life itself. Now I'm saying that's where our witness is to our children, our relatives, and anyone else that we want to witness to. And so when you think about it again, Noah was the only person in the midst of three billion people that was right with God. And you think about the pressure that that man had to be under publicly building an ark. It's not like he just had his belief in his heart and he was a secret service Christian. His belief is staring everybody in the face. He's not even near water. And he didn't have to endure that just for a few weeks. How long did he have to endure that? 120 years. And the world's not getting better during those 120 years. And they're not getting more sympathetic towards the preacher of righteousness. They're hating him more and more and more. I guarantee you about 120 years, he could not wait to get on that boat. You're like, Lord, would you please let me get on and shut the door behind me, which the Lord did graciously. But here's what else we can get in a positive way. Do we need to fear the world? Because what happened? What happened to Lot? They wanted to kill him, and they would have. They hated his guts. But who delivered him? The angels. That's right. And do we need to fear the judgment that's going to come on them? Uh Uh-uh. Because God, he didn't spare the city, did he? But he did spare Lot. Took him and his wife out of there. So verse 9, we're getting ready to end here. It says, the Lord can do some things. Verse 9, the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. So he knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation. He knows how. You know what that's saying? He's got the power and the wisdom to deliver us in the worst of circumstances. And that's the story of the Bible from beginning to end. Joseph, brothers were wanting to kill him and do him in, and God supernaturally had his hand on him the whole time, didn't he? And elevated him to the heights of Egypt. And we've got the story of Esther and Haman. Haman has got all the cards in his pocket, doesn't he? Looks like all the Jews are in big time trouble. But it says God knows. He has the power and the ability and the wisdom to deliver the godly. And he did, didn't he? And who ended up having the noose around his neck? It wasn't Mordecai. And David and Saul and on and on and on. But he says he can reserve or guard the unjust until the day of judgment. That's what verse 9 is telling us. So it may seem like the righteous are being afflicted temporarily, like Psalm 73 says, and the wicked are prospering. But Psalm 73 tells us don't be fooled, because that's not the way it's going to end up. Because those that are living in sin, that think their sexual freedom is covered by the grace of God. They think they can hide their greed and covetous under the promise of prosperity. That's what they do. Peter's telling us, hey, their destruction and judgment are coming swiftly. The judge is not asleep because God has always, that's why he started in Genesis, going to go all the way through. Jude gives us this thing out of Exodus. He says, that's the way God has always been. Sinners never get away with it. 
That's what Ecclesiastes say. They think because he's long-suffering and patient, they've gotten away with something. And he says, no, nope, that's not the way it's going to be. The best thing you can do is fear God, Ecclesiastes ends with, and keep his commandments and it will be well with you. But just as he's always done that, he has always, go through your Bible and see he has always delivered the godly from trials and temptation. That has never stopped either. And it won't stop all the way up to the end. We can trust in that today. We can have hope. If we live righteous lives, God will deliver us. <laughs> That's what Peter's telling us. He's always delivered his children from trials and temptation, just like the rising and setting of the sun. So there's two kinds of people in this world, and there always have been. Those like Noah and Lot and the ungodly. And the godly are going to be this way. They're going to believe and put their trust, number one, fully in the Lord Jesus Christ. To do all for him. Not only just to save him. He's their Lord. He's going to deliver them from sin. Heal us. Do everything we need. Everything he's promised to do. But the godly are also, according to this warning, and this is what Peter's doing. This is why he's painting it so graphically. They're going to see the nature, the practice, and the end of the ungodly. And they're going to be warned. And the godly that are here in this room listening with ears to hear, they're going to say, I'm not going to be like that. I'm not going to partake in that judgment. I am going to be on the narrow way. I'm going to be exercising my heart to be an Olympian in godliness and righteousness and holiness and truth. Amen? And all will be well. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you, Lord, for this warning that you've given us. And in that warning, there's also an encouragement, though, Lord, that if we'll follow you and be aware of the false teachers and their schemes, and their gimmicks, and what they're trying to promote in all its different forms, Lord. We can be aware of that. We thank you that you've pointed that out to us, Lord, and we can know that if we'll walk according to your word, even if we are the off-scouring of the earth, even if we are the butt of jokes, even if people hate us, that we will be secure in you and that you will deliver us. You will deliver the godly as you have all through the word and give us favor. And in the end, we'll hear you say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And that's our prayer here today in Jesus' name. Amen. Soon and very soon, we are going to see the King. Soon and very soon, we are going to see the King. Soon and very soon, we are gonna see the king. Hallelujah, hallelujah, we're gonna see the king. Well, soon and very soon, we are gonna see the king. Soon and very soon, we are gonna see the king. Soon and very soon, we are gonna see the king. Hallelujah, hallelujah, we're gonna be, there'll be no more crying there, we are gonna see the king, there'll be no more crying there, we are gonna see the king, no more crying there, we are gonna see the king, hallelujah, hallelujah, we're gonna see the king, when I think of the good Such is common to men. 
there's no temptation taking you But such is common to men But God is faithful My God is faithful He'll not allow you a test of Taking you, but such is common. There's no temptation taking you, but such is common. But God is faithful. Hallelujah. God is faithful.